I am going to be uh, veering a little bit off the message on love that we've been talking about for the last six months, but not much because this is also about love. But uh, I, I, we really felt led to have a time of, of healing here this morning, and so I'm going to be centered on that. And I want to back into this message by talking about the biblical concept of being made in the image of God. The technical theological term for it is Latin, uh, which is the imago Dei, that we are created in the imago Dei, the image of God. It says this in Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us, this is the climax of all creation, the final day of creation. He says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And let them have dominion. Because they are in my image and likeness, let them have dominion. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. The repetition is for emphasis. God created them in his image, that is to say, in the image of God, in the emphatic here. It was in the very image of God that he created them, male and female, in case anyone's inclined to think that males are somehow more in the image than females. It was males and female. He created them. In Psalms 22, David says, by quite a contrast here, expressing sort of a despondent state of mind that we are all to so- sometimes prone to, he says, I am a worm and not a human. I am a worm, and not, not quite reflecting the imago Dei in this instance, but he's, he feels like a worm. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, one of the movies that moved me the most, that touched me the deepest, is a cartoon. It's The Little Mermaid. Did you ever see that show, The Little Mermaid? Isn't that just a, oh, uh, I, I uh, you know, I'm glad it was a cartoon because I fell in love with Ariel, you know, uh, you know, it's those Disney eyes, those Disney eyelids, the Disney smile, the, the Disney innocence, and her voice. Who couldn't help but be melted by that voice as she looks up and sings, What would I give to be where you are? What would I give? You know that song? <laughs> she did it a little bit better than that, but... but uh, no, she's just, uh, the, the whole show is just wonderful. And, and you, you fall in love with her. And then there's Sebastian, the, the crab from Jamaica. Here's what I do, man. you got to come down hard on these, these girls. You know what I didn't say. And uh, then there's, 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 there's Flounder, the, the fish, and, and uh, that, uh, that seagull with the dewblatt or snorfblatt, whatever it's called. Ah, it's just a great show. Now, in the middle of the show, it's a great drama, too, because it's got good, it's got evil, it's got suspense. And at the end, when she says, I love you, Daddy, I start crying. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's, just got, it's got poignancy. I'm mad enough to say that I cry at cartoons, all right? <laughs> Bambi, Pocahontas, and Little Mermaid, they slaughter me, all of them. But uh, there is, in the middle of this, this uh, uh, show... A time when King Triton, who was, who was Ariel's father and the ruler of the entire sea, this big, hulky, you know, muscular king, uh, because of this uh, evil octopus named Ursula, uh, he, and because of some foolish decisions that Ariel made, he is turned into a worm. Do you remember that? He's turned into this little sea maggot. Uh, and, and is put in a jar along with the other sea maggots at the bottom of the ocean, and he looks pathetic, and it's really sad. Here he is, a king, the mighty king, the strong king, the ruling king, the dynamic king, and he's turned into a worm by the evil Ursula. And when he looks like this little sea maggot, he, he, 
He doesn't, he doesn't look like a king. He's a sea maggot. Now, he really still is the king, right? He, he still is, is, is the ruler, uh, but he doesn't look like a king. He doesn't rule like a king. He doesn't think like a king. He doesn't talk like a king. There's nothing that looks really kingly about him, but in fact, he's still a king, even though he's been transformed by the evil deception of Ursula into a sea worm. Now, why do I say all of that? I say all of that to say this. seems to me that this is an exact, uh, profound uh, expression of the situation of humanity. We are created for incredible, mind-boggling, almost incomprehensible dignity to be rulers, to have dominion in the image of God himself. But because of an evil Ursula that is now the God of this age and our own willful rebellion, we have fallen to the status of worms. To the point where David says, I am a worm and not a human. We sink to that level. Um, I, I was this last week at a, at a um, conference. That's where I, I wasn't here last week. I was down in, or up in Toronto at a, the American Academy of Religion. It's a, oh, yeah, so quiet, yeah, actually. Uh, the, it's a society of scholars who get together, hobnob about religious things, discuss stuff, and usually it's quite boring, though the weirdness of some of the perspectives, is, it kind of makes it amusing. But in, in the course of this, this is what we do when we get together. Paul, Eddie, uh, and I went out shopping for books, and we spend our, you know, way too much money on books because they have all these books that are there. And he found one book that was absolutely incredible. There's a chapter in this book that he shared with me, and it's on the image of God. And it, it uh, just opened my eyes to some things I'd never heard before, and I'm quite sure you haven't either. The author, um, understanding that when you read the Bible, you have to, as much as possible, understand it in its original context. And ask the question, how would the original audience have understood these concepts? Well, this guy does this with the concept of the image of God. It turns out that the, the, this phrase, image of God, was not at all unique to the Bible. It was found throughout the whole Mesopotamian area. Uh, everybody knew what the image of God was. And he does a historical background into that in order to highlight the meaning of it in the Bible. What you find is this. In, in all of the, the cultures that the Israelites came in contact with, they knew what the image of God was. It was an idol that you made. You made an idol in the image of God. What they would typically do is they'd build this uh, tremendous temple dedicated to a god. This temple was supposed to house God. It was, uh, this was God's habitation. And then they would form an idol out of wood or stone. Uh, they would carve it, and this idol was to represent the god and was going to live in the house. The representation wasn't a literal physical one. They didn't understand it, that the god actually physically looked like this. But the idol, the image of God, represented or manifested the attributes of the god that they were dedicating the temple to. So the warrior god would have a warrior idol, and the, the god of sexual ecstasy had a sexual idol, and, and, and so on and so on. And the climax of building this temple for their god was when they would take the idol and put it in the, the, uh, the, the temple. And then they'd do a ritual. They usually would create these, these idols with an open mouth. And then they would, it would call upon the deity to breathe the breath of life into the idol. His own spirit then would inhabit the idol. And in the eyes of, in the minds of these pagans, they believed that the idol then became a living being. 
that the presence of their God really was in the idol. And God really lived in their temple, which is why they would run to the temple when they wanted security. They'd, they'd offer sacrifices and provide food for this idol and, and, and various things. They took care of the idol, and the idol then would, would, would give them protection. But in their understanding, the presence of their God was mediated to them through this idol. That's the image of God. Now, the biblical author comes along and turns everything on its head, uses the same concept, but it applies it in a different way. First of all, we don't build God a temple. There was a time where he kind of let the Israelites do that. But the the dominant motif throughout the Bible is that the whole world is God's temple. Much of the language the Bible uses to describe creation is temple language. Language that that ancients would understand uh, to apply to a temple. So he says, for example, in Isaiah 66, he says, The Lord says that heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is my resting place? In other words, how are you going to build a house that's going to contain me? The whole world contains me. He built creation, as it were, as a house for himself, a temple. The whole thing belongs to him. He inhabits the whole thing. And now, and now he creates an image of himself to put in the temple. This is how ancient people would have read Genesis 1. The whole thing is is turned upside down. We don't create a temple for God. He creates a temple for himself. We don't make God after our image. He makes us after his image. And then he puts us as the climax of creation, the climax of building this temple. He puts us in the temple. We don't invoke him to breathe breath into us or into his image. Rather, he himself breathes the breath of life into us, it says in Genesis 2 using the very same language that the pagans used with regard to their idols. And we don't provide for him, he provides for us. We find in Genesis chapter 1, and we don't look to something else as to mirror who God is, to image who God is. Rather, from a biblical perspective, we are the image of God. We are the image of God. Now that would sound very, very odd to these ancient people. Their life revolved around this image. In the temple, that was the, the, the center of their, their whole life, their, their religion. Uh, they paid homage to these, these, these idols that they called the image of God. And here come the Israelites saying, no way, you know, it, it, it's not that idol that you should be, you know, interested in. Rather, we are the image of God. We bear the image of God. We bear the likeness of God. If you want to know what God is like, look at us. Look at yourself. All human beings are made in the image of God. What it means is that human beings have got, if you understand it in its original context, an incredible dignity, incredible worth, an incredible calling. There's nothing greater that the biblical author could have conferred on human beings than what he conferred on them in calling them in the image of God. God makes a a being who is like him, who is going to now reflect his attributes. And the main attribute that we're called to reflect, we've seen in, in our study the last six months, is the main attribute of God, which is love. We are created to be able to love like God loves as he breathes his breath of life into us. We become animated. As we get our life from him, we give his life through us. We can love like God loves. We have an incredible dignity. That's why it says in Proverbs or in Psalms chapter 8, listen to this. The author says, When I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars that you have established, He's looking around and he's seeing the magnitude and the magnificence, the grandeur of the creation. And he's saying, what are humans that you're even mindful about us, that you're even aware of us? We're so small. We're so puny. 
We're so, we seem so insignificant. Why are you interested in us? Look at the heavens, the glory, the moon, the stars. But he answers his own question when he says, Yet you have made them a little lower than God. That's an incredible statement. You've made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. Why? Because God is glorious and God has honor and he's made us in his image. He's crowned us with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under your feet. Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. The bottom line is this. What you need to know, according to the Bible, is that you are made in the image of God, which means you are made for greatness. You are made for glory. You are made for honor. You are made to be a king. You are made to be a queen because you are made to reflect the very likeness of God. God fashioned you. God breathed his life into you. God formed you. God destined you. God has, in principle, put everything under your feet. God has placed you in his very own temple as the climax of his entire creation. God has, in fact, in scriptural terms, called us to be co-rulers with him. He wants us to rule with him. That's why prayer is so important because it is one of the main ways that we agree with God to get his will done on earth as it is in heaven and God really relies upon that. He gives us this dignity and this responsibility to be the bearers of his image and the means by which his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And it climaxes the entire creation, the creation of human beings, the creation of you. It is the pinnacle of God's creation. The placing of God's own image in his his temple. Now, the temple is itself absolutely mind-boggling amazing. When when you look at this temple that God has made, this whole creation, it it, it blows my mind. You look at the stars, and, and every year it seems we learn more about the expansiveness of the universe and the number of galaxies that are out there, billions of galaxies, and each one of them has billions of stars, and some of these stars are hundreds of times bigger than our own sun. It's mind boggling. And you learn about black holes, and you learn about quasars, and the intricacy of the universe, the magnitude, the beauty, the grandeur is absolutely stunning. And some of the beauty and creation, this temple that God has made, is absolutely overwhelming. The sunsets, the sunrises, the change of leaves, uh, music, things like that. It's just mind-boggling. And some of the intricacy that's involved in nature, you look at the intricacy of a leaf uh, or the eye of a dog, it's no human could manufacture such a thing. But then when you turn to the human self, even the body that we have, this is all part of this physical temple here. Uh, It's absolutely incredible how intricate it is. And, And the brain, we we have over a thousand trillion neuron connections in our brain. Absolutely amazing. And every one of them is like a little computer. Mind-boggling intricacy. We ought to look at that and be impressed by that and say, man, God, you are smart, you are intelligent, you are glorious, you are wonderful. But don't get too impressed. Don't get too impressed with that because the, glor- the most glorious thing he ever did was when he created you. You climax that whole thing. Looking in a mirror should impress you more than looking out at the stars of heaven because you are made in the image of God and that's never said about a star. You are in the likeness of God that's never said about a galaxy. Amen. You have a capacity to do what nothing else in this whole created order can do, and that is love like God loves. Be the recipient, be the bearer, and be the the conferrer of the love that God is throughout eternity. Absolutely amazing the call that God has given to us. I know we live in a culture and a time where, where you get a lot of people saying stuff like this. You know, human beings are really not that different than the animals. You know, we're just... 
Uh, we all sort of just evolved by time and chance, the primordial ooze, this sort of chemical soup, and lightning hit it, and then some amino acids developed, and, and then came the amoebas, and a couple billion years later, through some chance mutations and genetic alterations, we get human beings. And the message of the whole thing is that human beings are really no different than amoebas or any other kind of protoplasm, carbon-based life form. We're, we're, we're just a little bit more complex. You know, we're just sort of complex worms when all is said and done. And, and if you convince people that, that they're complex, Complex worms, they'll start to think of themselves as complex worms, and they'll eventually start to act like complex worms. And the truth of the matter is this. I don't know how long it took. I don't care how long it took God. If he wanted to take all the time in the world, that's fine. How exactly he did it doesn't, doesn't concern me, whether he took a billion years or did it in six literal days. I have no interest in that. But what you got to know is this. He created you by his own mind, by his own design. You are in the image of God. You're not just some kind of primordial soup evolved through some kind of chance evolution, genetic mutations. You have the dignity of God put upon you, praise God. You're in the image of God, in the greatness of, 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 of being in the image of God. Amen. Amen. He's, called, he's crowned us with glory and honor. Now, what's also true is this. That's how God created us, and that's true. That's the truest thing about you. Hold your head high, image bearer. What's also true is that we, like King Triton, have been brought into bondage to Ursula, haven't we? And we, through the deception of the enemy and through our own willful rebellion, have often, amazingly, succeeded to make ourselves very worm-like, haven't we? We have made ourselves worm-like. We have lost, we surrendered the, 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 the authority and the power and the grandeur and the dignity that we had as, as those who were supposed to co-reign on this earth with the Lord. And we've been brought into the bondage of, of, of an Ursula. Jesus came to restore that kingship and that queenship. Jesus came to give back to human beings what was rightfully theirs by giving back to God what is rightfully his. You see, Jesus came and in principle dealt a death blow to Ursula. In principle broke the jar that held us uh, as worms. And by the power of his love that we sing about, has transformed us from the worms that we used to be into the image bearers that he's always destined us to be. In principle, Jesus accomplished all that on the cross. The king became a, a died the death of a criminal that those who were kings and became criminals, could have their kingship restored under the king of kings. Jesus came to give us back the beauty and the radiance and the, the, the capacity of those who are made in the very image of God and are meant to co-rule on this earth with him. That's why he came. That's why he died. That in principle happened on the cross, and it begins to happen to each one of us when we accept what Jesus did on the cross and enter into, enter into a relationship with him. But what's also true is this. Our whole life is basically a process of increasingly manifesting the truth that we're not a worm, but we're King Triton. It's true in principle at the start. But we still live in a world that is a war zone where the Ursula is still the god of this world. We still live in a world of lies. And the Holy Spirit's always working in our life to further manifest the truth of who we are because of who God is, because of who God is as creator and because of who Jesus is as Savior. God's in the process of setting the captives free. Jesus said, I've come to set the captives free. You see, another way of speaking about this is to speak about healing. Healing is the process whereby we get freed from our worminess and move further into our King Triton kingship.
All right? It's a matter of, of, of getting the shackles off of us so we begin to walk in our mind, in our spirit, in our body. We begin to manifest increasingly the truth that we are made in the image of God himself and are, are given by grace the capacity to do what God does, and that is love with an outrageous love, and to enjoy life in the temple that he has made in the way that he created us to, to live in it. Healing is a central part of our growth in Christ. Now, healing involves every area of our life because our kingship involves every area of our life. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he's praying a prayer, and he prays, may, may you be kept sound and blameless in your spirit and in your soul and in your body. Now, now because we're made in the image of God, there's three fundamental dimensions to us, spirit, soul, and body. And Paul's prayer is that every area of us Every aspect of us, all three dimensions of us, would be kept sound. The word that means harmonious, incongruity, healthy. Paul's prayer is that we who are believers, who, uh, that, who, are, who have accepted Jesus Christ into our life and are now living for him, would manifest the destiny, the goal that God has for us, and that is to be healthy as King Triton's in body, soul, and spirit. Let me break this down a little bit further. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die to get us free from hell. That's part of it. That's the ultimate thing. But he died to free us from everything that could ever lead us to hell. All right? And that includes our whole body, soul, and spirit. He died that our spirit might be made whole. Okay? He does this by freeing us from sin. It says this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that he bore our sins. Why? That we, being free from sin, might live for righteousness. It wasn't just the penalty of sin that he took upon himself. It was the power of sin. And so we are to live with that power diffused in our life. We are to live in righteousness. Then he says, by his wounds you have been healed. What the author is doing here is, is uh, comparing sin to sickness, to illness. When we sin, we wound ourselves. We act wormy when in fact we're kings. Sin is literally as we are in Christ beneath us. And so what the author is telling us is that Jesus died to free us from the power of sin. He wants to set us free. We have, hear me on this, as kings who are made kings by the king of kings, we have a right to be freed from sin. He died to free us from sin. The power, in fact, is already, uh, of sin is already uh, uh, diffused. We are already dead to sin. And what the author is saying is live in that. How long will you stay under the power of this sin that holds you in bondage? How long will you give Ursula, that wicked octopus, the, uh, the, the power to keep you, this area of your life, worm-like when God has called you to be a radiant, beautiful, dignified king? Not only that, but how long will you uh, uh, let uh, Ursula hold you in condemnation for past sins? In fact, one of the main way, ways the enemy keeps us in bondage to present sins is by condemning us for past sins so we feel so miserable about ourselves we don't think we have the power or the right to get out of the sin. It's all nonsense. How long are you going to be paying for that past divorce that you had or the affair that you had, the abortion that they had, the, you had, the addiction that you have? How long are you going to pay for that? 
The enemy just wants to accuse you and accuse you, never let you to forget it, keep you in a worm jar, when in fact the Lord is saying, come out, King Triton. Time to rule the sea. Get out of that wormy bondage that you're in. I died for it. I paid for it. Claim it. You have a right to it. You're in my image. You're in my likeness. You're my child. You rule with me. Be healed from the, 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 the struggle and the past condemnation that the enemy holds over us. Be set free. He came to set the captives free. A second area is our soul. We're to be sound in spirit, soul, and body. Our soul is, the, the word is suke. We get the word psychology from it. Uh, it, it it's, our, it's our thought and our emotions. Okay? It's your conscious personality. And the way we get wounded here and the way that Ursula keeps us in bondage is, by, is primarily through lies and emotional scars. Lies and emotional scars. So that now the way we, we keep on thinking of ourselves according to our worminess rather than according to our King Tritonhood, if you will. So the question I want to ask you is this. When did you first get the message that you were a worm and not King or Queen Triton? Who told you you were a worm? And that can occur in a million different ways. But any word, any, any message you receive that is not consistent with the message of Genesis 1 that you're made in the image of God and is not consistent with the New Testament message that you are now a child of God, anything that disagrees with that is heading you towards Wormville. Okay? And who told you you were a worm? The thing that's amazing is Ursula can use the most insignificant things to drive home that worm message into our minds. It could have been some kids who laughed at you in the playground in third grade. And boom, it sticks. And now that conditions how you think about yourself the rest of your life. I spoke with a young lady this last week uh, who has got chronic depression. And um, in praying for her, kind of got a word about a, guy, a boy in, in the past. And I just started asking some questions. Turns out that in eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade, there's this, the most popular kid in the school turned around, and apparently this person has kind of an unusual laugh. And this kid said something like, you, you, laugh, you laugh sick. Your laugh is stupid. And she was humiliated in this class, and so she came to the conclusion that she should never laugh again. I must never laugh again. And now that's in there, that little worm message is in there, and it's going to run on autopilot, and it has repercussions for the rest of, uh, of her life. Some eighth-grade kid who was just scavenging for a little bit of worth by trying to steal worth from her, scavenging for food, trying to get a little bit of life by being popular, uses her to do it, and she pays for it the rest of her life. But I'm here to tell you that you're in the image of God, not in the image of some punk eighth grader who didn't know any better. And you were created to laugh. You were created to roar with laughter. You were created to enjoy life. You were created to dance. You were created to enjoy who you are because you were created to be defined by the one who created you, not some eighth grader. You were created to be defined by the one who saved you, not some eighth grader. It's time to claim your right to laugh. It's time to claim your right for joy. It's not arrogant to say that. It's just godly to say that. We compliment God when we live life to the fullest. I love what Irenaeus said in the second century. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. Fully alive. Free from the the matrix, the pattern of this world. Free to live in the glory and the honor and the dignity that God has created us and saved us to walk in. A lot of ways we learn that we're worms and rather than being children of God, and they're all just Ursula lies. It's time to get freed from them. Might have been dad who was distant. Might have been the mom who was overly critical. Might have been the ex-spouse who was always saying nasty stuff about you. Maybe it wasn't anyone in particular at all. The culture's full of lies, and that's plenty to give us the message that we're worms. But I'm here to tell you this morning that you ain't no worm. You're a child of God. You're a king. You're to reign with him. You've got a dignity and an honor and a glory as the imago Dei that we are supposed to claim. Get healed from the wounds of the spirit. Get healed from the wounds of the soul. 
and get healed from the wounds of the body. Yes, even that is part of what Jesus died for uh, so, so that we would enjoy. So it says this in uh, uh, Acts chapter 10, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He healed all who were oppressed by the devil. In fact, the word that's used for physical infirmities in the New Testament often is uh, the word mystics, which means flogging. They saw physical ailments as a flogging from the enemy. And Jesus came to put an end to that, through the power of God to put an end to that. Now, we've got to be balanced on this. It's also true that in this present epoch that we're a part of, this transitional period between what Jesus actually accomplished, accomplished and the full manifestation of it when his kingdom comes back, we are, we are to some degree in physical bondage, all of us. If the Lord doesn't come back in our lifetime, I don't, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but you're going to die, all right? You're going to die, okay? So, so in this physical realm, until the kingdom comes back, we're not going to be totally freed from this. Still, note this, this is an important still. It is God's heart for us to manifest the truth that we're King Titans and, and to manifest who we shall be by even in the present time being healed from our sicknesses and infirmities. Now, there's a lot of variables about that. I don't want to get simplistic about the whole thing, but you've got to know the bottom line is this. Jesus did it. He gave us, us the power to do it, and we're to be walking towards that, to be claiming for ourselves the provision of the cross that comes out in terms of physical healings. We, this is one that this culture has a huge stronghold on. We really have trouble believing God for this one, but we need to be exercising faith. To see, it's about God being glorified because he wants us in spirit and soul and body to manifest the reality that he created us to be King Tritons. Some, some believers get nervous when we, start, when, when we start saying God made us a little lower than himself and that we have a glory and an honor because they think that somehow, you know, to glorify God, you have to become a little worm. I call it maggot theology. You know, I'm lowly, I'm scum, I'm all this. And they think they're glorifying God by that. But see, God isn't, he, he, he's not threatened by us being what he created us to be. All right? He created us to be what he created us to be. You don't compliment a painter when you say, man, that is one trashy uh, painting that you've got there. And that's, no, it's when you say, wow, I can see you in this painting, and this painting is great. Now you're complimenting the painter. So also with the creator. He created us to be incredible paintings. So much so that we're mirrors of him. We're in, in, his, mirror, we're in his image. We're in his likeness. And we glorify God when we live in the glory that he created us to have. And you have a right to that because he is the one who says you have a right to that. And it's time to claim it. How bad does Jesus want us to, re- to reclaim our dignity as image bearers in his likeness? Well, here's how bad. He went to the cross of Calvary to do it. He did not give up on the human project In fact, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering of the cross, going to Calvary, having the the nails pounded into his hands and into his feet, uh, dying a hellish God-forsaken death. Why? Because he, he saw ahead the joy of restoring us to the honor and dignity of the bearers of God's image that God had always intended us to be. He wants us to live an abundant life, and that's why he did this for us. He loves us with an everlasting love and was willing to go to this extreme for us to now walk in the fullness of that love. And that's being made in the image of God.